welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I uh, re-listened to our Lovecraft episode, as I always do. I always listen to the episodes as they come out, just to find out what it was we were really saying. But one of the things I said in that episode was that I kind of like the writer who's sort of like Larry Holmes, just shooting out this effortlessly perfect and endlessly varied jab, just like this elegant precision. To me, Borges is that guy. Yeah, uh, it's it's so clean. It's not terribly demonstrative, but it just fucking owns. Yeah. Yes, especially this story, Thlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, which is, I don't know, there's something about this story. Every time I read it, I get something new from it. One of the major motifs of the story is mirrors, right? He keeps bringing up mirrors, and the story mirrors it. The narratives mirror one another, and, but the story itself is a kind of mirror. <laughs> like It just seems like every time I've read it, I've learned something about myself or about the world. Oh, the, interesting. The state of the world or something. This. It's a very potent piece of writing. It doesn't read like fiction at all. It really does read like a kind of almost like a treatise of some sort. Which this is something I love about Borges's fictions generally. That strange quality, that sort of dry and elegant diction mm-hmm. where everything sounds like, well, I mean, everything sounds like exactly what it is, which is an immensely erudite man, somebody in whom the culture of the West has pooled, just carrying on with his learned inquiries. Yeah. It's just that the learned inquiries are very often of completely imaginary things. Uh, one of Borges's great gifts, too, is he really has a knack for synthesis. He has a knack for taking disparate currents of thought and seeing some kind of common implication in them and then like bringing out what all these different like that particular literary movement that particular philosophical school that particular theological principle and then drawing from that some weird implication yes um, that then just kind of shows us uh, a side of our own thinking that tends to get occluded, that we tend to ignore. And then so, so he's, he's showing us, like, he's lifting the hood, showing us what's underneath, you know, uh, yeah. the modern machine, you know. In one sense, it's a very simple story. In another, it's a very complex narrative. So once again, the title is Tlun Ukbar Orbis Tertius. It's the story of how a certain number of characters uncover this centuries-old secret project which involved creating an entire fantastical planet, writing the encyclopedia of a fictional planet, and then inserting that encyclopedia and its lore into the world in such a way as to change our world forever. Basically turning that fantastical world into reality. It's kind of this weird magical working, but it goes through all kinds of twists and turns. It starts off with two guys having a discussion and then one of them in the midst of their discussion mentions uh, that a particular heretic of Ukbar once said that copulation and mirrors are both abominable because 
they uh, multiply the numbers of men, which I th- just love that. <laughs> which is such a great um, line. And then the, the narrator who's reporting this uh, says that he got kind of obsessed with this idea of Ukbar. He never heard of this country, so he starts to look for it. And it turns out that Ukbar doesn't exist. But then his buddy shows up with a volume from an encyclopedia, the Anglo-American Encyclopedia, which is a reprint of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and shows him this article on this land called Ukbar. It looks kind of fake. So they're wondering who the hell wrote this fake entry in this encyclopedia. And that's that spurs this quest to find out what's going on. And it turns out that this is just like the entry point into this conspiracy, which consists of the creation of this fictional universe. Um, and it's a vast conspiracy. Yeah. One of the cool things about this is that it wraps up the lore of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, right. which itself is one of the great kind of conspiracy mysteries of the Western hermetic tradition. It posits that the one guy who we know with a fair degree of certainty wrote one of the Rosicrucian manifestos in, I think, 1614, a guy named Johann André. It postulates that he is one of the first to start hatching this idea, that the idea is originally to create a hermetic movement, but then while Rosicrucianism kind of makes a big noise in the world, and it's a fake secret society, there's actually a real secret society of Andre and his associates who set about trying to create an entirely invented world with its own metaphysical system that undergirds the fundamental ways that everybody in that world sees things and thinks. Right. And the idea is that this secret society has been quietly building this world for more than 300 years. And so this weird rip-off encyclopedia that has this peculiar article in it, the only thing that makes it different from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which it otherwise has completely duplicated, the discovery of this one anomaly is like a hanging thread on the end of a sweater. You know, which yeah. you start pulling and pulling. And it's one of those great conspiracy fictions. This story very economically shows you just layers behind layers behind layers of how deep this goes. Right. You know, we first find this weird article, then is uncovered the 11th volume of what purports to be a 40-volume encyclopedia of Klun. And the 11th volume itself seems to indicate the existence of others, And yet, even the most assiduous attempts to find other volumes fails. And so it's the attempt to kind of reconstruct this world from this single volume. It's hard to imagine where this volume could have come from because Clint clearly doesn't exist. And yet it is so perfectly and fully imagined that it could not possibly be the work of one person or even a generation of multiple people. And as it turns out, this is absolutely true. But then the revelation of the conspiracy behind the creation of this doesn't wrap up the story. It just opens up yet deeper layers of conspiracy and mind fuckery. And and even the content of the conspiracy, the content of the text that they're finding is layered. So it starts off with, There's a fictional country on Earth called Ukbar. But then in that fake article in the encyclopedia, under the heading uh, literature and folklore, you learn that the people of Ukbar, their literature and their their legends were set in a fictional world called Tlun. There are actually two fictional worlds, another one too that's never mentioned again. Tlun is one of them. So that's why when that 
mysterious volume from the Tulun Encyclopedia shows up, that's what catches the narrator's attention because he remembers reading in the Ukbar article that the people of Ukbar, which are people who never existed, set all their myths in this world called Tulun. And now he found an encyclopedia of that fictional universe of that fictional people. And it's, it's just replete with detail. Like it's just rich. It looks like the encyclopedia of a real place, but it's a place that couldn't exist. But then <laughs> this is the great magic you know what they call the prestige in, in like stage magic? The moment where the trick has been revealed and you're just like, you're just, you just let... Your jaw's on yeah, the floor. your jaw's on the floor and you have to let the effect sink in. At the very end of the narrative, Borges closes off a section, then, then he switches to a new narrator who says, the foregoing, so everything we've read up to now, uh, first appeared in a, a fantastic fiction journal, basically. the uh, What's it called? The Anthology of Fantastic Fiction, something like that? Anthology of Fantastic Literature, 1940. Right. So you're being told, basically, that everything you read up now is, is a fiction. But then he goes on to describe how, in the real world, Tulun has begun to manifest. So a bunch of weird little synchronistic occurrences have begun to suggest that our real world is turning into Tulun. So the first one is this weird compass that Tulun coordinates on it shows up and the needles kind of wobbling mysteriously looking for north. Yeah, so it's a sign that this world is coming into being. And then finally, this drunken kid dies from alcohol consumption and has on him a cone made of a an extraterrestrial metal, which is a metal that was used on Tulun to build certain effigies or symbols of their gods. And it's like impossibly heavy, like yeah. a tiny, you know, one and a half inch tall cone of this material uh, will crush your hand if you try to hold it. Right. So at the very end of the story, which is has basically been an exercise in literary criticism or literary investigation, suddenly we're thrown into the science fiction place where all this fiction adds up to something all too real. And the narrator at the very end, he says that he's letting this happen and he's resigning himself to continuing his translation of Thomas Brown's uh, Urn Burial, which I thought is just a beautiful way to end the story. I have my own interpretation of the story that I'm eager to share, but uh, maybe we should... Trust with it. Should we start with that? Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing about Tulun, this world, which is the work of a secret society that began, the original members include George Barclay. Oh, yeah, that's right. The father of modern idealism. Sorry, Phil, but this is all about idealism and its dangers. Oh, I, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. and but also its joys, its terrors and joys. Exactly. Which is one of, this is one of the things that makes it a supreme piece of weird fiction. You know, remember when we were talking about Lovecraft, we mentioned the Algernon Blackwood story, The Wendigo, and talking about the hapless French-Canadian guy, Defago, who is abducted by the Wendigo, and the description in Blackwood's story of his cries being poised somewhere between frantic fear and despair and a weird ecstasy. You know, that is this kind of, to me, one of the, the emotional signatures of the weird. It's not even an, either an alternation between those two poles or the oscillation between those two poles is so rapid that it amounts to a third substance, something totally other. And to me, the way this story treats this kind of uh, incredibly rigorous idealism, or not rigorous, but fantastically elaborated mm -hmm. idealism. The effect on the reader, at least on this reader, 
is of a kind of vertigo that is kind of poised between despair and ecstasy. Yeah. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you could say the good, the bad, and the weird, because the weird is always what, it it (laughs) cancels out any type of binary. So yes, yeah, absolutely. This is not a moralistic piece of writing, or it's not telling us like, don't be an idealist. In fact, it's very clear that the system of idealism, as embodied in these particular thinkers who came up with Tlun and the encyclopedia, has real power. In fact, at one point says, the idealism of Tlun couldn't do otherwise but affect reality. He says it, <laughs> which, is, which is not an idealist statement. So there's one moment in the story where he says, I'll read the passage. Centuries and centuries of idealism have not failed to influence reality, which is a, a wonderfully ironic statement because it's basically saying that idealism is a way of thinking. There is an objective reality that can be altered. But idealism, even though it's wrong in its tenets as to the fundamental nature of reality, can still affect the fundamental nature of reality, can change things. I don't know if Borges is saying anything about it being wrong or right. Well, I'm saying that sentence has a clear logical implication. If you say that centuries and centuries of idealism influence reality, it means that reality, there is a reality to influence, which is a contradiction of idealism. But like... Yeah, obviously, if we're talking about the idea of a material reality, the idea of reality as almost everybody in the modern West thinks of it, the assumption that reality pertains to the idea of a self-existent world that sort of goes on its merry way, whether or not anyone is there to perceive it. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality of the kind of Barclayan idealism that's being experimented with here. Um, Well, it depends. It depends because Barclay didn't make the final move, right? Because Barclay said you need an objective God to sustain all reality. And he believed that the mind of God is separate from the minds of people. God creates minds. But in Tlun, in the monistic idealism of Tlun, Borges describes how it came to the point where they believed that there was only one individual. So there's only God. So it's a pantheistic idealism. It's a truly monistic idealism, which Barclay didn't seem to argue was the case. In other words, for Barclay, there are many, many minds, one great mind responsible for all the other minds. And that great mind is eternal. But in Tlun, there's only one mind, and we're all fragments of the one mind. Yeah, but then why deny that its share of reality? Why say that can't be reality? Then you say, well, the reality in Plun, the reality in this kind of idealism, is simply a reality in which human minds are illusory. Well, but yes. You okay. see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, and you're right as well. But what I mean to say is this. The way I read that sentence, centuries and centuries of idealism have influenced reality, have not failed to influence reality. The implication for that, for me, was that if the world was ideal then idealism was always influencing reality. Reality was always determined by the mental. But you, I guess you could interpret it to mean if an awareness of the ideal nature of the world is espoused for long enough, then that will influence how the world functions. So that, well, that, how, about, yeah. how, how about this? The possibility of imagining a world that in truth is materialistic, just as most people suppose it to be. But that idealism is almost like a kind of virus, like uh, William S. Burroughs' idea of language is a virus from outer space, 
as something that remaps the human world, in fact, makes the human world what it is, but as something that has not existed from the beginning, but as a force from outside that changes it. To me, the way I read this story is the idea that the world is not in its essence idealistic until idealism comes into the picture and remaps the world. But if that's the case, then it was always idealistic. It was always determined by how humans thought, right? No, but is it necessary to suppose that for idealism ever to obtain, it must always have been so? Well, the power of the idea to, sh to determine the real must have always been so for that to happen at any one point, is it, does it not? Well, how do you figure? Well, if I say, if something happens, causally it can only happen by virtue of some potentiality that pre-exists the happening. Like, you can't have something happening without it being possible for it to happen. So what does idealism entail? It entails that reality is determined by human thought. So if that's the case in one point, like, are you saying that the world could have been materialistic and then yes. turned into idealism? Yes. But by what... That idealism itself could be a force, like a virus from outer space that changes what it is for something to be real. Yeah, I get it. But I, I think that your analogy presupposes an outer space, which in itself is non-idealistic. If there's a space, uh, some objective space out of which new modes that can alter things come from, that space can't be idealism or else you're begging the question, right? No, like, but what a, no, I, I mean, but think about it this way. Okay, imagine a universe that is exactly as materialists imagine it. Dead matter. Yeah, I don't think materialists are actual materialists, but yes, okay, let's go with okay, that. Okay, but ima imagine that that's actually what reality is. So energy. Okay, Let's sure. call it energy, just because, yeah. Yeah, well, energy and stuff, like forces and things. Yeah, for energy right? that, that constitutes things in fields of measurement. Right, right. There you go. Right. Okay. Now, if you think about say, cybernetic thinking. Sure. Cybernetics doesn't actually negate materialism. Cybernetics just says you can have a lot of different things in that material universe interacting in such a way that mind becomes an emergent property. Once you have a system of sufficient complexity, it will start behaving in a mind-like way, which from a pragmatic point of view is the same thing as saying it has mind. Right. So imagine a material universe that is as the most severe materialist would have it, just an unmeaning play of forces and stuff, or stuff resultant from forces. Pure a kind of pure determinism, like cause yes. and effect. Okay, that's yeah. right. Imagine that that sum total of physical systems begins to think. Okay. Imagine that it wakes up. Imagine that through some process, which I'm not going to try to imagine, but somehow the same exact universe is possessed of a new property. Yes. Let's call it consciousness, right? Right. Okay. Now, if that happens, then it is possible for the nature of reality to change, to go from being as the materialists believe it to be, to being as some version of idealism might imagine it to be which is to say 
that the universe is thought, that reality is thought. As of the moment where consciousness emerges, the entire universe becomes thought. Yes. Yes, that's possible. But at that point, there'd be no purpose in positing that there was anything other than this idealist world before. Because yes. the before would be a meaningless thing. So you would be Quite. making a claim on the nature of reality for all intents and purposes the way it's always been. Because time yeah. itself would have come, come into being with consciousness. Because if you only have dead matter without consciousness, without something like experience, then you really don't have a, a clear concept of time that you could posit as being real. And, and if that were the case then there'd be no difference between a universe coming into being with an illusory past that's materialistic or a universe coming into being that's it's always been idealistic. So yeah. you can't have a world that becomes idealist without it always having been idealist. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly isomorphic with the idea of time that John Crowley is playing with in his Egypt tetralogy. It is, absolutely. Where... Which is one of my favorite ideas to play around with. And from that point of view, there would never be a subject, an intelligence capable of understanding what it was before. No, because there'd be no before. Yeah, this exactly. Mayasu, uh, Quentin Mayasu nails this problem. He calls it the problem of the arch fossil. Yeah. Like what is a fossil of something that existed before there were any humans? Well, if you're a materialist, or if you're an idealist, you have to answer the question, well, what is the nature of that thing? For example, dinosaur bones, right? So did the dinosaurs actually exist or do they only have they only existed to us because we are conscious of them? I think that this story is very much concerned with that idea. Like there's a mm -hmm. moment in uh, Tulun where he says, this is a fantastic little passage too. Um, he says, uh, so at one point he's, he's describing precisely how the idealism of Tlun allowed people to start manipulating reality. So at first, this power of their idealist beliefs manifests accidentally, like lost objects are found in multiple duplicates. So basically, you lose a pencil, and then one person finds your pencil, but another person finds, or you find, another pencil. So there are two of the pencils yeah. you've lost. Two, two people looking for the same pencil. One yeah. person finds it but says nothing about it. So the other just continues looking for it and finds it. And finds it. But it's a little distorted. It's a little different. It's a little right. larger. A little bigger. Yeah, it's a little bigger. And its form is awkward, it says. Like yeah. So they catch on to this. So they start to try to methodically produce this effect. And they try a bunch of experiments. So they take a bunch of inmates in a prison and tell them that any one of them who can find these treasures that are said to be buried uh, in the bed of this river will be set free. So the prisoners go and they're full with, filled with hope. But all they find is a rusty old wheel that tangentially relates to the fictional past that the leaders of the experiment have concocted to make the inmates believe there's something down there. So then they figure that hope is actually not a very good way of obtaining these objects, which uh, the people of Tulun called Ronir or Runir. And then they try another experiment where they get these students and colleges to do the same thing. And eventually they start to figure out how to do it. And they find a bunch of objects in the river. They find a golden mask. Uh, I don't remember all. It's like... Oh, and the, the mutilated torso of a dead king who has like runes carved on his chest that nobody can read. Right. I thought that was such a great, weird touch. Yeah. And, and they find these, these archaeological treasures of a civilization that never existed. They just made up. So, right. and, then, and then Borges writes, 
The methodical development of Runir, states the 11th volume, has been of enormous service to archaeologists. <laughs> <Just love it. laughs> it has allowed them to question and even to modify the past, which nowadays is, is no less malleable or obedient than the future. I find that passage really interesting to think about in context of postmodern theory. The tendency today to write the past under certain auspices, under certain presuppositions that might not have obtained when that past was actually going on. I, I can't help but see a critical note in that when it comes to how Borges sees the deployment of this sort of thinking affecting the world. But that wasn't my point. My point was, I think that in a sense, Borges is very much working with the same idea that Crowley works with in Egypt, which is the idea that if time is an illusion, if time doesn't actually have a linear force, if time doesn't actually have any real objective reality outside human consciousness, then the past becomes as malleable as the future. Right. Um, and then the question is, well, is that something that a species would want or not? You know, that's kind of the question we're left with at the end of yeah. the story. And I find that to be a very, very important question. Super um, interesting question. Yeah. I feel like Borges... One of the things, paradoxically, that makes his fiction so weird is the total restraint, the perfect restraint from either apologetics or polemics. He does not judge these ideas. He just puts them out there and lets you deal with it. Right. Which is something that actually makes these stories more disturbing than if it were like Lovecraft grabbing you by the lapels and telling you, that what you're seeing is a kind of like image of abominable evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's just showing you the possibility of a world that could continually rewrite itself. But he's also revealing the motivation that might lead a group of humans to want that world. So what happens? Another interesting... I kind of, well, I kind of want that world. I don't want that world. Okay, I, no. we have something to talk about. Yes, we do. I do not want that world. <laughs> Why do you not want that world? I don't want that world because that world is without meaning. It's without even the possibility of meaning. So for me, that world, first of all, that world is contradicted every moment of our lives. That world is a wish. There's a great passage actually in Thomas Brown's Urn Burial that I think, I don't know, I would guess that this passage is one of the reasons why Borges decides to say at the end, to make the narrator say that, He'll just ignore this transformation of the world into Tluin and continuous translation of Thomas Brown's urn burial. So Thomas Brown wrote this, I think it's 17th century, an essay on the discovery of these Roman urns in England. And it's a long meditation on death, impermanence, transience, the brevity of life and all that stuff. So Brown wrote, the most tedious being is that which can unwish itself, content to be nothing and never to have been. Huh. And for me, the impetus for creating a worldview by which time has no objective meaning, by which everything is created by the mind and determined by humans, is a world that does not wish itself to exist. It's a world that wants to dissolve itself into some Advaita mist without content. And I think there are very good reasons to want that. Because life is fucking hard and life sucks. But it seems to me that a world that would remake itself in the image of this particular human wish, what Freud called the death drive, is a world that has stopped engaging with the universe. 
Um, but I'm, I'm going to uh, object to one fundamental aspect of your critique. Sure. Which is you keep saying it's a human wish, that it's a human thought. But the thing, and something that Borges is, I think, pretty clear on in his story, is that we don't know, or at least the inhabitants of Tlun don't know whose mind it is. It's impersonal. You know, the, um, the, the brief account of the language of Tlun, where you, you would never say the moon is rising because saying the moon is rising is assuming that there's an object out there called the moon that has its own self-existent reality independent of the observer. Mm -hmm. And so instead of saying the moon rose over the sea, you would say upward beyond the constant flow, there was moondling. Yeah. Moondling being this, you know, imagined verb. There's no such thing as a moon. There is only moondling or yes. mooning, you know, the mooning. Uh, another translation he provides is upward behind the on-streaming it mooned. And saying, you know, it mooned or there is, these are like abstract impersonal verbs. Uh, and this reminded me, actually, I've thought of the story many times since I started doing Zen meditation about a decade ago. There's a, a line like, in the thought, only thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no thinker. There is only thinking. Uh, there's no moon. There is only mooning. Um, but that there is implies a kind of abstract point of view from which these events of thought take place. Yes. But it's not your thought or my thought or any other particular thought. We don't really know whose thought it is. If, even saying it's God's thought is already a supposition. And it's worth noting that in this imaginary world of Tlun, Borges says that they have an endless passion for metaphysical systems, none of which they treat as true. They treat metaphysics as a branch of fantastic literature. Yeah, what they're looking for isn't truth, but he says a kind of amazement. I love That's that. That's right. Yeah. And that is what I get out of this idea of a world that can rethink itself constantly. But this is before they make the final move. Because he, he, he at some points distinguishes two Tluns. There's the classical way of thinking in Tlun, which preserved, I think, this magic. But then there's the final modern Tlun, which has decided that there is one individual. All novels have the same plot. All philosophical books have to contain their antithesis. There is nothing happening anymore. Um, so That's an interesting point. You know, I, I confess that it didn't occur to me that that reflected a progression from a kind of... Um, uh, I don't want to say pluralist idealism because I'm not sure that's right, but at least an idealism that isn't monistic yeah. uh, to one that is a kind of an iron-bound monism. And I agree with you. That idea is a little bit scary. The thing I keep getting the impression of, and this is moving from the realm of abstract thought to ad hominem, I wonder if there is at the basis of your objection to idealism the fear that what idealism entails is a world in which we are just imprisoned in ourselves. It's like an imprisonment in the merely human. To illustrate what I mean by that, I think of like one of the greatest moments in all of Western culture, which is the second scene of the second act of Richard Wagner's Die Walküre. 
And what has happened, and this is a really important point in this massive 16-hour-long four-part opera that takes a week to perform. So very, very briefly, this tetralogy, The Ring of the Nibelung by Richard Wagner, tells a story of the whole world, soup to nuts, from its origin to its final destruction. And it is told as a series of misadventures that follow from an original moment of transgression where Votan, the king of the gods, wrests this ring of ultimate power from this wicked dwarf named Alberich. And he does this in order to preserve the balance of the world. But in so doing, he sows the seeds of the destruction of the world. And much of the opera is just Wotan desperately trying to square the circle, desperately trying to find a way to undo the fatal kind of Chinese finger trap logic of the bind that he's in. And at this moment in the second scene of the second act of Die Valkyrie, it all comes crashing down. He realizes the ultimate futility of what he's trying to do. And for reasons that would take me way too long to describe, one very fundamental problem he has is that nothing he can create has a free will. So in order to get the ring back from a giant who has taken it, he can't go after the giant because he's bound by contracts. And the way he interprets those contracts, it's questionable whether he interprets them correctly or not. But the way he interprets it is only a hero who is possessed of complete freedom of will can do this deed for him. But that immediately puts him in a bind. How does he create a hero who will do his will? Every time he tries to figure it out, all he ends up, as he says memorably, all I can create are slaves. And you can interpret this moment in any number of different ways, but one thing it always speaks of to me is the feeling of suffocation, a kind of existential horror at living in the world in which nothing you can touch, nothing you can interact with is anything more than simply a hypostasis of yourself. Absolutely, yeah. It is the, it's, it's, it's in a way the ultimate nightmare, a kind of ultimate claustrophobia. You are trapped for all eternity with yourself. Yeah, the worst nightmare I've ever had was a lucid dream. I had this in high school. I had a lot of lucid dreams then because I think I didn't sleep well and I slept sporadically. So I was often in this weird... <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, this was out of kind of choice or whatever nightly obsession kept me up till two in the morning and then getting up for school and then uh, coming home and napping and that sort of thing. So... Uh, and when it, when you napped, was that when you found that you were closest to a sort of lucid dream world? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have lucid dreams and out-of-body experiences when I napped, never in the middle of the night. Night was for uh, sleep paralysis. <laughs> so it was, Oh, uh, fuck, man. Yeah. That's, a rough, that's a rough scene. <laughs> I enjoyed it because it was, there was no better indication that I was not trapped in myself than to encounter these other beings that were definitely not me even in my sleep. <laughs> but uh, So one of the dreams was that I was in this um, huge hangar uh, I've mentioned this dream before, and there was a, a structure within it, a kind of like scaffolding that filled this hang this hangar. And I was wandering about it, and I was being followed by my I knew what I knew to be myself. And my doppelganger was singing a song 
the words were in the twinkly twinkle of an eye. And it just kept repeating that, that line. And I was absolutely terrified. Of Jesus, that sounds like the starkest nightmare. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified of seeing my. I knew that if I saw myself, I would die. So I came to this place in a basement. It was kind of one of the many basements of this structure. And there were all these strewn pages, all these pages on the floor. And I went up the staircase and there was a door at the top of the stairs. And I could see this like blade of light cutting through the underneath the door. And I saw the shadows of two boots and I knew it was me. But I also knew I had to open the door and I could hear the little song being sung from across on the other side of the door. So I opened the door and just as I did, I woke up. Uh, So I think you're very right to say that I have a fear of being trapped in myself. But you got to put your neuroses to to good use. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. I agree. So I think that there are good reasons for us not to want to be trapped in ourselves. Uh, even sure. though the, the fear and it's and the fear might be fundamentally irrational, and maybe it's probably the case that on some level there's a clear idealist streak in my own thinking that I perform my uneasiness with some of it by with this resistance to idealism. I sometimes have wondered this, yeah, because there are times when you and I have corresponded where I felt like that um, idealism is never far off and not just as an object of loathing or aversion. Well, I mean, I actually, I think probably most objects of loathing and aversion are always in danger of tipping over into objects of fascination and the profoundest love. Yes, exactly. That's like Rudolf Otto, right? Uh, Mysterium fascinans et tremendum. So the, mis- the mystery is always fascinating and terrifying. So there's some of that in there. And, and if, if by idealism we mean the belief that ideas are real... Then yeah. I'm an idealist, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, so, but the thing that you've said before in this show is that what really chaps your ass, and that's a quote, <laughs> uh, is the idea that for something to exist, it must be perceived. Oh, that, that to me is the, the stupidest thing ever said in philosophy. And Berkeley said it. And Berkeley was an otherwise intelligent man. But that is, that is singularly the stupidest thing any human has ever said. Because it's the first thing, it's the first thing you need to know is false in order to be a human being. Like a toddler thinks that, not even a toddler, an infant thinks that. Well, they're humans. They're humans, but they don't, they can't function until they figure out that that's complete bullshit. That things are exist when you turn away from them. Object permanence, in other words. But this need among moderns to believe this is true. And I believe this belief exists implicitly even in some forms of materialism is it's just for me the most flagrant sign that we've humanized the world to the point where we don't even have to believe that there's a real world out there i'm going to confess i haven't read barclay but i mean he was a bishop right so presumably he believed in god my understanding is the idea of like it doesn't matter if a human being is there to perceive something. That is a matter of indifference. It could be an ant or a grasshopper or an elephant or no organism at all. It could be in the mind of God or some lowercase g God, some demon. Mm -hmm. But it has to be in someone's field of perception. But then why is that human solipsism and narcissism? I mean, I definitely agree that there is a very broad streak of Deepak Chopra-esque popular idealism, the kind of new age, you know, we create our own reality kind of thing. And yeah, that's a kind of 
narcissism that seems to speak of the kind of ultimate degeneracy of the modern condition. I'm totally with you there. But once again, I find myself asking, but why do we assume it's that stuff has to be perceived by human beings? It can't end there. That's why Barclay brings God back in. So the logical sequence that leads one to posit that God is necessary for the world to exist, that logical sequence must include a solipsistic stage. This is implicitly present in Descartes. But Barclay, what he does, what he says is that, well, I can't know for sure that my house exists when I leave it. That doubt is fundamental throughout the thing. Even once you say, well, the house is there when I leave it. But since perception is necessary for me to know things exist, perception must therefore be a necessity of existence as such. And then you say, though, that's why we need a God. We need a God to perceive our houses when we leave. So God becomes a function within a system whose ultimate aim is to equate existence with perception and specifically to equate existence with human perception. So it makes God the big, big human who must see things when we turn away so that they don't just disappear. So, but what but do you, the, the what, logic is there throughout, right? Okay, I'm not sure I remember this argument perfectly well, but then what do you make of James's chapter on Fechner in a pluralistic universe? Because there he is sort of trying to find a sort of a middle ground where he's like, you can infer a consciousness that embraces or comprises ours. Mm-hmm. And you can then imagine a further layers of consciousness that further embrace. But he uses Fechner as yeah. an example of how that does not, in fact, entail a terminus point where it has to end up at, uh, yes. at, at the capital G God. Well, I prefer Fechner to Barclay. But at the same time, I just don't think you need to ever deposit that there's any connection between existence and perception. I just don't think it's necessary to even consider that as a... We just know that things exist without being perceived. Well, shit, none of the things we're talking about are necessary. They're just fun to think about. To get back to uh, my John Crowley-influenced idea of what... I've coined a a neologism to describe this kind of time, the time that ceases to exist because the nature of reality itself has changed. Uh, Parachronic time. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually thought you might enjoy that concept a little bit more than you did because no, 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 it seems I do. to me because it seems to me to be not so different from what Miesu is talking about. His idea of hyper chaos is something that is capable of doing anything or nothing at any moment, including rewriting itself. Mm-hmm. Like that I don't see how that's actually that different. And you dig that idea. I know you dig that idea. Well, that idea posits a non-human reality that does not need to be perceived in order to exist, namely hyperchaos. Right. Hyperchaos doesn't perceive, it just creates things. So, yes, I mean, I do dig that idea. The, the non-neurotic part of my resistance idealism has something to do with what it implies politically and, and socially 
to embrace this sort of thinking. We're living in a world that's increasingly defined by human interpretations and human perception. We, are, we live in our screens. Right. Uh, we live in a world of information, of stuff filtered through human media to make human sense. Right. And the results are all around us, right? This would be your resistance, for example, to what Michael Garfield was talking about, the haptic vest. Yeah, I'm writing about that right now. I'm writing a chapter right now. I'm trying to finish it before the end of the month about that particular problem. But just to recruit uh, Borges here for my, for my own purposes, even though I know that he's <laughs> fundamentally ambivalent in, in this work and he's not, he's not telling us what he thinks, but the narrator at the very end writes a very interesting paragraph. I'm going to read. It's very short. So just to set it up, as a result of these physical manifestations of Tlun in our world, he says, almost immediately, reality gave ground on more than one point. The truth is that it hankered to give ground. Ten years ago, any symmetrical system whatsoever which gave the appearance of order, dialectical materialism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, was enough to fascinate men. Why not fall under the spell of Tlun and submit to the minute and vast evidence of an ordered planet? It's useless to reply that reality too is ordered. It may be so, but in accordance with divine laws, I translate, inhuman laws, which we will never completely perceive. Tlun may be a labyrinth, but it is a labyrinth plotted by men, a labyrinth destined to be deciphered by men. Mm. When I read that, what, I'm, what I read into it is that our need to humanize the world is a symptom of what Thomas Brown writes about in Urn Burial, of our fear of death, of our fear of, of things ending, of our fear of impermanence. And it's a way for us to inhabit a world that boils down to our needs, desires, wishes, wants, and hopes, as opposed to a real world that we have to confront. And it's hard for me not to see that world, that humanized artificial world coming up all around us now to the point where it's increasingly difficult for us to encounter anything in itself, for us to encounter anything outside the human world. I would even say like that haptic suit idea. So Michael Garfield in, in the episode he did with us mentioned a short story called Degrees of Freedom by Carl Schroeder, Canadian science fiction writer. And this is the story of a conservative minister of indigenous affairs in the near future who is sent to negotiate with the Haida, you know, to, to negotiate land treaties and claims and that sort of thing with the Haida in BC. And he is himself a Haida, but he's like a self-hating Haida, you know, like he's, oh, he's, okay. he's denied his indigenous past. And the story is one of those, you know, kind of Scrooge narratives where he's confronted with the ghosts of... Of indigeneity past, yeah. yeah. And then he, he's offered the chance to come to terms with the right way of seeing things. And then in the end, he doesn't quite convert. But one of the things that really has a big impact on him is that his son, who is an activist for the Haida, takes him for a hike and gives him a haptic suit, a kind of shirt filled with little sensors that enable him to feel the presence of wildlife in the forest. So basically, throughout this rainforest, this Haida rainforest... There are all these scattered sensors that pick up the movements of creatures. And then those sensors send that to the haptic suit so you can feel like a furry kind of something furry rubbing against you or a little buzz as a deer jumps and that sort of thing. And through that, uh, the idea is that the Haida, by putting this in place, are enabling people to feel what the ancestors could only imagine. 
they feel their interconnectedness. They tactily feel their connectedness with the forest. And this is supposed to turn you into a very progressive person. For me, it's the presuppositions that are built into this belief that are worrisome. So you'll often read articles today. I found a few examples where they, they put some variant of this argument forward. They say the average person today takes in a thousand times more information every day than the average person a thousand years ago. We actually talked about this in our episode on Graham Harmon. Yeah, we were constantly reading, taking in images and that sort of thing. But as we mentioned in that past episode, it depends on how you want to define information, right? So the seemingly self-evident claim actually becomes very problematic when you really think about it. So let's agree, you and me right now, let's agree, and I hope you will, that the human body, the human organism, from the point of view of pure, just raw stimulation, is constantly and at every moment saturated with stimulation. Would you agree with that? That there's no moment where there's a, one cell in your body is not being affected in some way. So if that's the case, then that was always the case. So a thousand years ago, the uh, human organism moving through a countryside or a forest was saturated with stimulus. The stimulation is, remains the same. So basically today we're constantly being stimulated, but we're being stimulated by a, a big chunk of us is being stimulated by information. So what people mean by information is human mediated information, human meaning. Even though it's possible that the ancestors walking through the rainforest would intuit on some level, some deep instinctual level or even telepathic level, the movements of the animals around them. Today, that whole instinctive stratum is relegated to a completely inconsequential level. And what's replaced it is this ultra-rationalist cognitive frame whereby the only thing that counts as information, the only thing that forms us, that informs us, is what has been mediated by human instruments. I once wrote an article about, um, I had this dichotomy, the city of signs and the forest of symbols. The forest of symbol comes from Baudelaire. So he says, in art, we move through a forest of symbols. So the forest of symbols would be the rainforest as such. The city of signs is the system of sensors and the haptic suit that are constructed within that. So in other words, in moving through the forest, the rainforest with your haptic suit, you're actually not experiencing the rainforest. Your body is less stimulated, if only because your haptic suit is grabbing your attention. Your body is actually less stimulated by the forest. It's being stimulated by the humanly programmed sensors that are translating the forest into signals that mean something to your conscious mind now. So that to me is a perfect illustration of this sort of belief that the only thing that means something is humanly contrived information. And I think that to fight this sort of thinking is a, an important task of philosophy. Interesting. You know, to return to Tlön and that last page that you read, 10 years ago, any symmetrical system whatsoever, which gave the appearance of order, dialectical materialism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, was enough to fascinate men. Why not fall under the spell of Tlön and submit to the minute evidence of an ordered planet? You know, I'm inclined to agree with you that there is in the interstices of this dry and almost passionless prose, a real condemnation, and not so much implicit necessarily in the writing itself, but in something one knows about Borges, which was that he passionately loathed both communism and fascism. Yes. 
and had to deal with ultra-nationalist movements on the right and communist movements on the left, both of whom attacked him repeatedly. And his feeling that both debased humanity and debased the human imagination, debased everything that he cared about. And so for him to say, well, that was a, a kind of a first draft at creating a purely geometrical, purely mediated and human-made universe. But the 2.0 version would be to convert the world to Tlun. Yes. For Tlun to invade the world and remap it. And what that is, is the remapping of the world in purely human terms. And there's an interesting small detail in this story when we get what appears to be the reveal, except because this is a story made up of mirrors facing one another, so you have a kind of an infinite regress, uh, and it never, it never ends. Um, so it's not really a reveal. It's just <laughs> another reflection. Yeah, another but layer. In, yeah. in the, in the pseudo-reveal, he says that there's this one guy, a slave owner in yes. the antebellum American South. Who, e- Ezra Buckley. Who, Yes, who is extraordinarily wealthy and who is described as a free thinker, a fatalist, and an apologist for slavery, and uh, a nihilist, it says, to this gigantic idea, the idea already in existence for two centuries, this strange quasi-Rosicrucian brotherhood of clunists who wanted just to imagine a country. A land, yeah. Yeah, this Ezra Buckley laughs at them and says, you're thinking way too small. Here in America, we think big. How about a whole planet? And the way Borges expresses this, to this gigantic idea, the gigantic idea of mapping an entire imaginary country, he added another, born of his own nihilism, which I think is very interesting. And as it turns out, Buckley is poisoned only a few years later by persons unknown, and he leaves in his will all of his vast holdings, his enormous wealth, to the secret society on one condition. Quote, the work will have no truck with the imposter Jesus Christ. And I'm not a Christian, but I know you are. And I find this very interesting. If I'm thinking about, like, what Jesus Christ means, it means the incarnation, right? Yes. But to me, the incarnation isn't just like, oh yeah, God had a son. What it means is the idea of matter itself, the order of reality that is impregnated, that is suffused, is lit from within by something that transcends Votan's condition in Devalkura, of living in this world populated only by copies of yourself by your own slaves worth noting that ezra buckley is a slave owner yes he is and he gives his slaves to the society yes um and so all of this is suggesting to me in a very quiet very sub rosa way that for borges this idea of a world swallowed up by clun clun is this virus from outer space that this for him is the ultimate blasphemy I don't know what Borges thought, but I think that's what I get from the story. And I think that I think it's hard to not see that when you pick up on these little signs. But he was very careful to relativize them in the narrative so they don't come off as as absolutes or as final judgments. Yes. 
which yeah. are anathema to art anyways. He never thumbs the scale of judgment. He does not, which I think he's very wise not to do that, because if he did that, then we wouldn't be reading his story today. Right. Um, so that scene where the society makes this unholy alliance with an industrialist and thereby transforms this project into a planetary one. For me, it's it's just this nice, really succinct way of demonstrating the weird alliance that conspiracy theorists keep talking about between the capitalist powers that be or the great political powers of the world and this esoteric Rosicrucian current Illuminati mm. thing. Um, right. And I don't believe that Borges was telling us that this actually happened. What he was saying is that implicit in the ideologies that dominate our world is a kind of magical thinking that through magic, the world can be fundamentally changed, which I, th which I think is true. But in the wrong hands, that can create a world that's not even worth living in. It could create a lo world of Lovecraftian horror. You know, just this week, our episode on Lovecraft and Nyarlathotep, that's what Nyarlathotep does, isn't it? Well, I guess it's ambivalent there, too. I mean, you could say that Lovecraft is about the failure of this project to make the world fully human. Well, Nyarlathotep is not making it fully human, but he's making it fully something. He's, he's assimilating it to an unknown intelligence. I think that what Lovecraft is doing is, is he's showing us the risk we have to entertain or the danger we have to admit is real when we live in a truly weird world. And that is the possibility that our discoveries could destroy us. If you just believe that every discovery leads us further towards some ultimate good, that somehow the universe and the human beings are in cahoots and that the universe exists to serve humanity, then you're living in the, the world before Neolothotep. But what Neolothotep shows us is the inhuman at the heart of the human, that even our inventions, electricity, modern psychology, all these things are already imbued with this inhuman power that if Lovecraft decided to write fantasy or science fiction might have been proves to make us more powerful or it, it could better our lives. But in Lovecraft's idiom, in his, in his world where he chose to go, it destroys us. But the risk of destruction or the danger or the real possibility of destruction and the real possibility of meaninglessness is something that has to be part of our worldview if we're going to live in a world that does honor to its own fundamental weirdness. There's a reason why one of the key words in weird fiction is the thing, right? And the thing comes up again and again in horror fiction to define something that is truly strange and truly uh, threatening and monstrous. Imagine if Lovecraft had called his story the thing on the doorstep, the idea on the doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's really I don't know why weird, I think that's so funny. Well, it's, it's absurd, but it's funny because as much as I want to resist, and I do with, with you and we're together on this, the modern project of this kind of dead materialism, there remains for me the truth that the great discovery that makes modernity, and that's the great affordance that could enable a leap into something new, is the discovery of the thing. When Galileo trained his telescope on the celestial bodies and saw that they were modeled things and not perfect ideal spheres, he was discovering something like the thing on the doorstep, something that, ex that has always been there without us, without being perceived, doesn't need to be perceived, 
and that by virtue of its self-existence points at a world where something new, something really new could happen. I don't believe that idealism allows for the new at all. Idealism has already, like a kind of lightning bolt, worked its way to the end and back. So wherever you mm. go within idealism, everything has always already been seen because being seen is the sine qua non of existence. So there's nothing new in that world. It's a world that the human has already defined, even if you posit a god within that. Okay, but... Yes. How about this? What if the human being is itself the thing? Well, that's that's what Lovecraft is showing us, I think. That's what I'm saying. That that To me, it's just sort of like, do we know what a human being is? You no. know, the whole time we're talking about from a human perspective as if that is identical with the daylight perspective, the, the cogito, the, you mm -hmm. know, the eyes that I'm looking at your Skyped image through, right? But the mere existence of the unconscious, which I don't think I know anybody obtuse enough to deny the existence of the unconscious. That is us. My unconscious is indubitably me but I have no access to it except indirectly through dreams and through the strange pings and knocks that manifest in my life. So let me give you an example of this. Something recently, I had a terrible attack of um, stomach pain uh, a few, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, shortly after getting back from her long trip in Canada. And in the time since then, it became really clear that that was reflecting something in my life about which I knew nothing. But my body knew about it. My body knew about it months before my conscious mind knew about it. Yeah. So whose consciousness was that? It's not me, but it's not not me either. It gets profoundly mysterious. Yes, it does. We don't know what a human perspective is. You say, like, you hate this idea that for something to exist, it has to be perceived in a human way. But we don't know what that way is. But that's exactly my point. But we think we know. And idealism is the hypostasis of our belief to know. That's all it is. But it and doesn't have to be. Surely no, it doesn't. there's a, a weird idealism is possible whereby all of that open-endedness and mystery remains possible. In fact, I was thinking about this as I was reading this. In an ironbound materialist universe, magic is very hard to understand. It's very hard to find a place for magic. Yes. You need to bring in new forces or new laws for it to Exactly. Exist. Yeah. Whereas in an idealist world, magic is not only imaginable, but basically inescapable. And it's worth noting, I think there's a reason why Borges is invoking a kind of parallel history to the formation of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. The reason he brings in hermeticism and, frankly, magical workings like the creation of these objects from just like imagining them, where the prisoners are set to looking for the archaeological remains of societies that never existed. And I thought it was really interesting that the first attempts failed because the prisoners had hope. And I read that and I was like, this is exactly like Alistair Crowley's injunction against having lust of result. In other words, doing magic while wanting your magic to work. Like the secret of getting money, if you were doing that kind of very low magic to get money, the secret would be 
to do the working for money, but to not actually give a shit whether it worked or not. Or if you're Austin Osman Spare, to forget you even did the working. Yeah. And I was like, this idea is entirely consonant with the idea that Borges is working with, to the extent that I wondered if Borges knew a thing or two about this. So, you know, like magic and idealism are very, very close to one another. One sort of idealism. And there are many variants of idealism. And I do think that the philosophy... And very m- many variants of magic as well. Right. You know. And I, I do think that if you and I were to sit down and develop a metaphysical system, it would incorporate elements of both materialism and idealism. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that materialism is right. In fact, I think that the two alternatives we've been presented, the two options, idealism or materialism, are just kind of a limited almost ideologically contrived uh, yeah. choice. It's like Pepsi or Coke. Well, what about Sprite? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So, so we can go somewhere else with this. Like, I do believe that, that there is a reality to magic, not because I want to believe it, but because I've observed it. So whatever system, whatever worldview I would choose to develop would have to account for that. And I, I also believe that ideas are real. So I, I think we're on the same page there. You know, Nietzsche has this great line. He says, um, we are not yet over God because we still believe in grammar. And I think a yeah, lot yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never I th- understood that line. I never knew what the hell he was talking about. Well, I, I think what he means is that metaphysics has been trapped in language. And a lot of, like Wittgenstein pointed this out, it's like a lot of metaphysical thought is actually just semantic nonsense. It's like... You're naming objects. It's constantly committing what Whitehead called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. So it's taking something like God and then talking about God like we know what that means, but we we never know what that means. Um, or just because you wrote it down doesn't yeah. mean you know what it is. Or, yeah, it's and this is similar to what James calls intellectualism. Exactly, and that's something he gets from Bergson. Bergson, I think, is an important piece of this because what he says is that the intellect is a necessary part of the human organism. We need intellect. We need to cut things up into units. But we also have intuition, which constantly tells us, reveals to us that these units are always contingent, that the units we cut things up into, different objects, blah, 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 are actually just part of these continua and these processes that we can directly intuit. But only if, Bergson says, we accept that time is real. This is the fundamental thing in Bergson. You can't have free will without real time. So time has to be a reality that exceeds the human, that exceeds consciousness completely. I think that's a move that, I mean, physicists certainly don't make that move. You know, Einstein said, if it wasn't for us, the universe would have begun and ended already. It's a block universe. Time is just internal to it. It has no reality. And the idealists say, well, time only exists to consciousness. So therefore, time has no actual ontological reality. Actual reality. What Bergson says, time is the actual reality. I'll tell you, I've lately been getting back more into Zen Buddhism, which was my point in to all of this kind of stuff. This is, it was when I started sitting Zazen that I started getting actually really interested in philosophy. And it seems to me that Zen, properly understood, is neither 
materialistic nor idealistic, even though there are ways of understanding, or I, I think misunderstanding Zen as being one or the other. But it really is something beyond that dualism. And that something beyond is, <laughs> please don't ask me to characterize it or, or state it as a position, because I think ultimately it's beyond stating. But it isn't beyond experiencing. It's not something locked away from us. Whatever it is, that thing that goes beyond the dualism between materialism and idealism, it's not just a vague, abstract thing that I can invent, but, but so what? There is something that we are not cut off from it, but, the, but more than that, I can't say. Yeah. It's what we were getting at, I think, in the Harmon episode when we were talking about Buber and, and the idea of looking at things as thou's. Yeah. When you look at something as a thou, you're seeing as something that exists in itself. And even that is to translate it into intellect, into intellectual thought. But I think that we all fundamentally feel this current of mysterious living that's at the heart of things and that resists any type of intellectual reduction. And Zen is very much about that. The Dogen text we discussed was all about that. Uh, yes. The ways, the ingenious ways in which he manages to render contingent any type of final statement about how the world works or what the world is. It's just a brilliant exercise in reconnecting with that fundamental intuition that we all share. And I do believe that only a kind of realism, a kind of a weird realism can put us in touch with this, even though it's true that no philosophical system will ever reach the fundamental nature of reality because the fundamental nature of reality, I think we agree, exceeds linguistic expression completely. Indeed. defies it completely. Um, that in itself, that idea that the fundamental nature of reality defies intellectual description can be the basis for a philosophical system. Yes. Or as we were saying before, and this is a, a line out of Zen, there's nothing to say, and yet you have to say something. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.